You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I chat with Kelly Lannon about what Fidelity is and what the company does, what the four ways are that young investors are learning about finances outside of just traditional education, what she is finding is the main reasons why people haven't started focusing on their money yet, where to get started with money, and a bunch more. Kelly Lannon is the vice president of the Young Investors at Fidelity Investments. She is driven to educate and inspire young adults to get more educated with their finances. Kelly discusses different topics on financial literacy, such as tackling student loan debt, putting together a budget, evaluating a job offer, and starting to invest. All right, now, without further delay, let's dive into this week's episode with Kelly Lannon. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Kelly Landon. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited uh, to talk to you about some of my favorite topics today. Let's start off by learning a little bit about you. What's your story and your background? How'd you get to where you are today? To be honest, this is a place where I never really thought I would be years ago if you were to ask me if I worked in financial services. And you know, the main reason why is when I was younger, I had a very specific impression of people who worked in this industry. I thought that you had to be good at math and you like numbers, still don't necessarily like those two things. I only saw the dads going to work in this industry. I never saw the moms going to work in this industry. And so as a result, I really never saw myself working here. And so it honestly wasn't until I graduated school. My parents helped me out. Then after I graduated, it was like, hey, you're on your own. You got to figure it out. And if I wanted to get an apartment you know, in the city, if I needed to pay my bills, but I still wanted to go out on a Friday night, for example, I really needed to get my money in order. I started to realize like how much everything costs. And I started to realize that money touched everything. So that's what really kind of skewed my thoughts towards paying attention to my money, which I know we'll probably talk about a little later. But in terms of working in this industry, it wasn't until I actually got to grad school and I started to meet some of my friends and colleagues in my business program. And they were working in financial services, but they were working in communications and they were working in strategy and they were working in marketing. You know, some of them didn't like math and numbers, but they were all part of this tremendous industry that was really helping people manage their money, which in essence was helping people do things with their money. So that's really how I ended up at Fidelity. And a lot of my work now is I focus on engaging our next generation of customers, our next generation of investors. 
millennials, title of your podcast, as well as Gen Z, and really trying to hopefully inspire them to engage more when it comes to their finances. I think a lot of people who are listening to the show today are probably familiar with Fidelity. I've talked about them here on the show. They're one of my favorite companies alongside Vanguard and Charles Schwab. Those are my three favorites. But for those who aren't familiar with Fidelity, tell us a little bit about what it is, what the company does. Love hearing that we are one of your favorites. So I'll take that, Robert. So Fidelity is a financial services company. But honestly, how I describe it to my friends and what we do is that we're really in the business of helping people live the lives they want. You know, as I've already noted, money touches everything. You turn on the light switch in your home and that's money. And so in order to help people live the life they want, whether that is helping them buy a home one day or sending their kid to college or retiring and not working anymore, we are a company that can help you do that. And we do this in a variety of ways. You know, it's either through our products, things like a, a Fidelity Spire app, which is an app that we launched last year that's targeted on younger investors, through our account options, you know, ranging from a brokerage account to retirement account to an HSA health savings account that can help with health related expenses. You know, through our education, throughout our services, we have tremendous live channel support. So you can always pick up the phone and call us. But really what we've been leaning into specifically over the past year, especially two years since pandemic hit, and even before that, is really interfacing digitally with our customers. At the end of the day, we're here to help our individuals, you know, with their money. There's a lot of talk that traditional education doesn't do enough to prepare students for their financial future. And I agree with that, but according to a recent Fidelity study, it seems that younger investors are actually finding their own ways and creative ways to learn this material that school isn't teaching them. What are those four ways that young investors are learning about finances and what is the breakdown on which ways are most popular? And I will say, I also have to agree with that. And, and that was part of the thing is when I graduated school, I remember like looking around and I was like, why didn't they teach me these things in school? And so Robert, I don't know about you, but I never took like a personal finance class at school. I honestly don't even know if it was offered. Was it offered at your school? No, it wasn't. Yeah. And so this is just one example. In grade, would I have taken it even if it's offered? I honestly can say I do not know that, but didn't have the option. And I think it's something like 14 states actually mandate personal finance education in high school. So I think I completely agree with that, you know, in terms of traditional education, it simply is not teaching us kind of the basics and personal finance, those money habits, those money tips. And so we do hear from a lot of younger people, you know, that they are finding different ways to educate themselves. Now, before I get into those ways, what has been really nice is that over the course two years, now more than ever, younger people are paying attention to their money. In fact, a lot of younger people told us they want to get educated. They want to build their confidence when it comes to their money. And so some examples which we've seen people, you know, get educated, the first thing is social media, which makes sense. You know, a lot of us are very active in social media, uh, you know, on a personal basis. Of course, you know, over time, we're going to become more activated in things like our business as well as our education. So for a lot of younger people, Gen Z in particular, they've told us that often one of the very first places they go to to get educated is their social channels, their social networks, you know, places like TikTok or Reddit or even Instagram. We do still see a lot of young people going to the individuals in their network, you know, people like their parents or their peers or a family member who are educated in this field. So that like really never goes away, especially those who are on the younger end of the spectrum, because usually they're still actually getting money from their parents. They don't actually have a full-time job. We do see people coming to, uh, you know, websites, coming to places like Fidelity. 
We gained millions of young investors you know, over the past couple of years. We have over 10 million young investors, both in our workplace and retail platform. And so people are still coming to traditional financial services, as well as fintech apps. I think all of us have a variety of those on our phones. And so these are just a few areas that people are actually coming to get educated on the topic of their money. What do you think the role is that parents play in helping their kids understand money and investing? Is it something they should be teaching growing up? Is it the role of schools? Who does this responsibility do you think ultimately falls on? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a little bit of both, right? I do believe that it is the responsibility of their parents to have conversations around money with their children. What we do know is that money is often a taboo subject. I mean, people are more likely to talk about their health than they are about their money. Sometimes it's not necessarily those quote unquote dinner table conversations. But I do believe it it is very beneficial if a parent begins to have these conversations with their children from a very young age. I mean, even me, my parents would always talk to me about saving. You know, they really stress the importance of saving, you know, not spending more than I was earning making sure that, you know, I was paying attention to my money. The only thing is, is that they never talked to me about things like credit cards and building up credit. They never talked to me about investing. They never talked to me about what a 401k was. So although yes, maybe the primary responsibility and that first responsibility should fall on either the parents or other family members or even communities, you know, a lot of us are involved in these communities. We can go to our communities for help. I think what we do have to recognize is that sometimes the parents don't have all the knowledge and all the education to educate their children. And then in terms of schools, I also think that, you know, when possible, it is a terrific opportunity for educators in the school system to also provide this education. Sometimes you're spending more time in a classroom than anywhere else. The problem is is that we found through some of our survey in the past that although 90% of teachers really felt like this education was important to be taught in the classroom, less than 20% had the confidence to teach it on their own. And that's a really important point because although it is important and people are realizing this, they want to have these conversations, if they don't have the confidence, you know, in their own education, in their own knowledge on the subjects, we can't necessarily expect them to do the same for their students. So again, that is why I think it falls to both these groups. And more importantly, like we should be talking about money. That's why podcasts like yourself are such a terrific thing. Because the more we talk about these subjects, the more we make them less taboo, the easier they are to talk about as well as educate the younger investors. You touched on the exact dynamic that I often find myself wondering is whose role is it? Because people in your lives, whether it be teachers or parents, they probably don't know themselves. Like they might not be the people that you want to learn from. You know, we love and care for our parents and oftentimes they're teachers, but if they don't know it either, if they don't have their personal finances in order, Those might not be the people that we want to learn from. And growing up, we think our parents know everything. We think our teachers know everything. But as we're now the ages of people who are teachers and parents, you realize how little that those people actually know about certain things. And when I think back about it, like I'm a parent, I'm not a teacher, but I know a lot of friends that are teachers. And I just think about like, those people are no different than what I had for parents or teachers growing up. And if I had to rely on them to teach me all this stuff, I'm not sure if that's right. So when I think about where is the role and who is responsible for it, I haven't really come to an answer that I'm personally happy with. But I think the best way, in my opinion, is to just make it not taboo. So you don't necessarily have to go to somebody or your parents or a teacher or anybody for every specific strategy. Maybe that's on you to learn, but at least don't make it taboo. So if you do have a question, you can at least talk to the people around you about it. Yeah. And I think that's an important point because, you know, to be honest, like companies like Fidelity, especially asking what we do, We actually do see it as our responsibility to 
to be the ones to put out education. So if we know that individuals are going to social media, for example, we better be there. You know, we better be there with our education because we have, you know, some of the smartest people in the world working in this company, constantly putting out content, constantly putting out education, and they actually do know what they're talking about. So if we know that younger people are really going to social media first, we've made it our priority. We take it as our responsibility to also show up there. You know, things like going on TikTok, you know, going on Instagram, because I think also now with society, and, you know, I've made this reference a few times, like, Robert, you could, you know, be a chef on a Monday, right? You work in a kitchen, you're a chef, you're making the eggs Benedict, awesome. Then on a Tuesday, you could be like, yeah, you know what? I don't want to be cooking anymore. I want to be a financial influencer. And you start posting on TikTok. You might know nothing, Robert, but people don't know that. So we want to make sure, you know, as a company, we are showing up on these platforms because we also do see it as our responsibility to educate people of all ages, especially those who are younger. When you go out and you speak to young adults about getting more engaged with their finances, What are the most common questions you're getting from them? And what do you respond to those questions? Oh, number one, by far, and and honestly, this is really regardless of age often, but especially with those who are younger, is how do I get started? You know, how do I get started? What are those first steps? And this includes a few things. You know, how do I get started with investing? How do I get started with tackling my debt? How do I build credit? You know, how do I, you know, pay my bills and still go out on a Friday night, for example? But That is by far always the question I get first. And that is often a difficult question to answer because that is often the hardest thing to do is to get started because it can feel overwhelming. You know, for example, like one of the first things I think we all do when we don't know something is we Google it. And that is both a blessing and a curse because you can get any answer in the world when you Google something, but it's also tremendously overwhelming because you get too much information. Robert, we were just talking at, you know, you were feeling under the weather. And, you know, the worst thing you could probably do is go on WebMD, right? To like diagnose your systems. And that's what happens a lot. And so, again, the hardest thing to do is, is get started. It's almost information overload. So really, a lot of times, the advice I give when people talk about this is I really advocate for those small steps. You know, making sure you're starting small and going piece by piece and tackling your finances in a really logical way. The first thing I tell everyone is if you don't have an emergency fund, start there. Okay, the unexpected happens. We can never prepare for the unexpected. That's the first thing you know, I tell every single person I speak to. And we often start to talk about you know, workplace retirement options. If you do have a full-time job, if you do have access to this, first of all, take advantage of it. Second of all, put enough into that account in order to meet your match. Okay, That's like free money. You never leave free money on the table. I'm sure you've, you've talked about this before in your podcast. And then we start to get into debt. You know, How do I tackle my debt? And general rule of thumb, you know, for anyone just starting off is really tackle some of that higher interest debt first, you know, including your credit card debt. Then if you can, you know, put even more money into the stock market, take advantage of compounding. These are just a few steps, especially when I say, you know, how to get started. The other thing too, is that what I've noticed is that it really is life dependent. You know, when I say young investor, like, what do I mean by that? From a business standpoint, we're really looking at people under 35, but a 35-year-old isn't like a 25-year-old. It's not like an 18-year-old. Some of the questions I might get to someone in college is, hey, can I even start you know, budgeting while I'm in college? When someone's coming out, it's like, hey, how can I make enough to pay my rent? You mentioned you have a child. you know, Hey, I have a child. What's the first thing I should do for their finances? So that's another thing. We really see that it is very much life dependent. And that is why Fidelity is a great place because we can help you at all the different stages of your life. I agree that having an emergency fund is probably one of the first steps for almost anybody. And I hear a lot of people give that advice and I agree with it. But where I think not a lot of people talk about is when you actually use that emergency fund. I think a lot of people put that aside. We know it's for emergencies. 
what is classified as an emergency? When, if something happens, how do we know if we should tap into our emergency fund savings or our actual just general savings that we're saving for something else? That's a good question. Well, I can tell you it's not an emergency. Oh my gosh, my friends are going on a trip tomorrow and I don't have enough to cover my flight. So no, that is not an emergency. So we'll start there. But, you know, we generally classify emergencies. And here's the difficult thing, right? It's person specific. What is maybe quote unquote an emergency to you might not be to others because you might actually have enough money in your general savings to cover that. But, you know, things that we've heard often is if you rely on your car to get to work every day, you know, and your car breaks down, that's an example of an emergency. If you're a homeowner and it is 90 degrees, you know, on, you know, a night in July and all of a sudden your air conditioning breaks and you do have a new baby, that happened to us. That's an emergency. It's kind of those larger ticket items that happen that you couldn't necessarily foresee. And I think that is a good question, like regular savings versus emergency savings. That's why I am an advocate of bucketing these things, because usually people for their quote unquote regular savings, things that are coming out of that are the day-to-day essential expenses. You know, I have to pay my rent. I have to pay my bills. So I think anything that isn't essential to you, you know, that happens unexpectedly, you know, I, I do tend to qualify as an emergency. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. 
Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. When you're talking to those students, you're getting all their questions. What are you finding as the main reasons why people haven't started focusing on their money yet? Why are they just getting started now? What has held them back over the last months, years before they got started? One of the main things too, I kind of already touched on this, is just the subject of like inertia, right? Like anything that's difficult, anything that requires more of their attention. You know, we know a lot of younger people do have short attention spans and, you know, a lot of people in general, instead of doing something, the default is usually to do nothing. Whenever you have to push yourselves out of your comfort zones. So that is often a reason we have. Some of the other reasons we've definitely seen, specifically in terms of debt, for example, is a lot of people refuse to look at things like their student loan balance or even their credit score because they're afraid of what they're going to see. And instead of dressing it head on, they actually just avoid it. And as a result, they don't actually take the time to do anything about it. You know, negative credit score, oh, I don't even look at it. I'm just going to avoid it. So I don't do anything. I think the other thing too, is that I think people naturally think that when it comes to things like investing, for example, it's got to be complicated. You know, well, I don't understand it. It's got to be complicated. When in fact, if you take a step back, if you do your research, it is not. And in fact, a lot of financial services company, Fidelity included, have made it very easy to get started, eliminating a lot of the traditional barriers. For example, we often hear, well, you know, only rich people get started with investing. You know, that's not true. You can get started today for free. We don't have any minimums. We don't have any expense fees in our account. So these are all definitely benefits that in the past, why a lot of people told us they didn't want to get started with investing. And we, you know, as a company have done a good job eliminating those so people can get started. Despite any of the delays that there might be, there's been a huge increase in the number of retail investors. You mentioned that you guys have seen a couple million people over the last couple of years of young investors. Yeah, we've brought in over 2.3 million young investors, those 35 and under, just this year alone. We actually saw about a 200% increase in bringing young investors in Q1. And since the start of the pandemic in 2020, we've brought in over 5 million young investors on a retail platform, and 36% of those were young investors. So we've seen a tremendous growth in this segment over the past two years. Yeah, that's massive growth. Why do you think that is? Is it just technology enabling more people to have access to financial markets than ever before? Or do you think it's something else? So I definitely think that it is a trend, a trend that will never go away. I think that technology, um, making sure that everything is seamless and digital, making it very easy to get started has definitely been a factor of bringing in you know more customers for sure. I do think that two other important things as well, you know, one, there's no kind of avoiding this, is the pandemic. The pandemic, you know, one of the quote unquote, I guess, positive things of it is that now more than ever, you know, younger people started to focus on their money. It was either due to things like, you know, job loss, you know, oh my goodness, I, I don't have a job anymore. I have to figure out how to budget my money and my emergency fund might only cover, you know, a few months of my expenses. People couldn't travel as much. You couldn't bet on sports. You couldn't go to Las Vegas and gamble. And so many people, as a result, were actually turning to the stock market. As we saw at the beginning of this year, uh, what happened with, with Reddit and the meme stocks, that was getting a lot of attention uh, you know, on all sorts of social media platforms. I don't know about you, Robert, but I like never watched the news more than over the past two years. 
And that's what all I was seeing. And I had friends who've never been interested in really what I do. But for the first time, because they were seeing it on the news, they were seeing it on social media, they were reading about it. They're like, what is going on? And should I start investing? And that brings me to kind of the third point is the FOMO is real. It is a real thing. That fear of missing out is often, you know, the number one thing that drives us to overspend. It's the number one thing that causes us to be jealous when we're like, why is this person traveling to Greece in the middle of the pandemic that I see on Instagram? Because you're not just keeping up with your friends anymore. You're keeping up with everyone. And we definitely saw the FOMO being real in terms of getting invested in the stock market. People saw their friends. People heard that people were getting invested and they're like, well, I want to do that too. And as a result, they were entering the market. They were asking questions and they were coming to firms like Fidelity more than they ever had before. Other than just maybe FOMO, what are some of the other drawbacks that you've seen or can think of for the easier access to financial markets? I think one of the biggest principles in investing is investing for the long term is typically the right way to go. And when you didn't have such easy access to technology, it was easier in theory to invest for the long term because you didn't have as easy access. It was took a lot more effort to actually make trades and things like that. Now it's so easy. Is there a drawback that people are investing too frequently? They're trading too much. They're not using real strategies. What are some of the other drawbacks you're seeing of this technology enableization? So I don't necessarily know drawback per se. I think what that means to me is that often people might be opening themselves up to risk when they don't confidently know what they're doing. I think for younger people, we often do see that inflated sense of confidence at times, like, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing, or, oh, wow, this individual told me they were trading on margin, or they started trading options, I should be able to do it too. And in the reality, I really practice like trade, invest in what you understand. If you don't understand some of these strategies, if you don't understand some of these terms, turns out you probably should not be doing that. I also think, Robert, that sometimes people perceive the lack of doing nothing as a bad thing. You know, it, it's almost like they mentally, well, if I'm not doing anything, does that mean I'm missing out? Does that mean that my account isn't doing anything? When in reality, to your point, the better strategy a lot of times when you're investing is for the long term to stay steady, to not touch your account, to not touch your investments, even when the market goes up and down. So I think it's less due to technology, in my opinion, and more around coming some of these human nature elements. I really do believe that the ease of technology has made it easier for a lot of people to get started when they might not have been able to do so before. But I do believe that it is more around you know, human nature and some of these things that I just shared that is causing people to maybe make rash decisions when it comes to their money. But I will say this, that that still is a smaller percentage of individuals who did get invested. I think often the perception is that all these people who entered the stock market are these stock pictures, day trading, they're constantly moving. Well, yes, some of them are. In reality, I think a lot of them really just want to put a little money in and see what happens. In fact, the survey that we recently saw out of the individuals in Gen Z that we surveyed, you know, only I think 55% had actually made their first trade at the beginning of the year. The rest were actually holding out because they wanted to educate themselves more. They wanted to start small and they didn't want to just dive right in. So I think often there's perception, oh, there's all these day traders out there. Oh, wow, they're being risky. When in reality, it is a smaller percent of individuals than I think we actually think. Other than just the pandemic increasing the amount of people that are interested in managing their money or investing, how has the pandemic impacted the way that young adults need to think about their money? And what hasn't changed? What remains the same, whether there's a pandemic or not? I'll start with that, like the latter point of view. I think that regardless if there's a pandemic or not, people should always 
as we already talked about, you know, make sure you have that emergency fund, make sure you're participating in a workplace retirement account. If you can make sure you're taking the time to take a look at your finances, make sure you are, you know, paying down your debt, meeting your monthly bills, et cetera. Those are things that shouldn't change regardless of pandemic is happening or not. But I think in terms of thinking about your money, we already hit upon a few of these things already, is that it really caused people to take a step back and think about their money in ways they hadn't before, whether that was for the good or the bad. I think it also had a very positive impact, kind of alluded to this, on people seeing the power of making their money work harder for them by investing it versus just necessarily putting it in a bank account and letting it sit there with a very small interest rate. So I think these are you know, some major things that happened due to the pandemic. But I think at the heart of it, what should never change is making sure people are paying attention to their money, making sure people are asking questions, as well as like bringing up conversations with the people in their life and educating themselves better. That should always be a constant. And just one more quick note on the pandemic, just when and if it ends, whenever that is, people aren't going to demand less the ease of doing things digitally. Like just because we can be more in person, I think people aren't going to be like, oh, you know, make it harder, make me go into person for this. I feel like the digital ways that we're now used to doing things as a result of the pandemic are never going to go away because in many ways, yes, they solved for the problem that we couldn't be in person, but in other ways too, they also made things easier for people. And I don't think that's just going to go away just because we can now be in person again. What are some of the unique challenges that young adults today face that previous generations may not have? What do millennials, me, you, people listening to the podcast have to deal with today that maybe our parents didn't have to deal with? I think the first going to a theme we've already talked about is education, right? The cost of college has doubled since our parents have have been in school. Many people have to take on student debt in order to pay for their education. And as a result, you know, the amount of debt that younger people are taking on has also increased in the previous generations. We often hear from young adults that the number one reason they can't get started with investing or they can't meet their goals is they have such tremendous debt and they can't see how they can do both. So I think that's number one. Number two, we are a generation that is making less than previous generations. We literally are not making as much as our parents did and our grandparents did. So as a result, you know, that impacts a lot of the other decisions when it comes to their finances. We are also doing things, you know, at different stages of our life. Like, yes, you know, millennials and Gen Z, they still want to own a home. They still want to have a child, but they're also doing it later in life. They're not on like the same timeline as previous generations. And so you can't always make decisions solely based on one's age. And then going back to my previous point, because we're making less, there's often, we might not be able to afford the house at 25. We might not be able to afford the house at 30. So those things really do go hand in hand. I think also, you know, what we've seen and going back to the whole meme stock and Reddit madness that happened at the beginning of the year is that this is a generation that has like the new American dream. This is a generation that is more politically involved. I mean, if you talk to people on the why it happened, they literally wanted to take down Wall Street. (laughs) You, You know what I mean? So I think that there's a lot here that we just didn't necessarily see in previous generations. But honestly, there's also the positive, right, Robert? Like we're we're generations that we're often, we often choose to work with companies, invest in companies that share our values. We want to do good. We still want money. You know, I often hear that a lot. Oh, younger people don't want money. You guys are, no, no, no. People still want money. It's just how they're spending their money isn't necessarily the same as previous generations. You know, we tend to spend things more on the experiences versus the things. So money is really the conduit to help us get there. Have you noticed any key differences between 
Gen Z and millennials and how they approach their money and investing? Yeah, it's interesting. So for a lot of millennials, you know, myself included, when I graduated school, graduated in the middle of the recession, right? I remember the the downturn after September 11th. You know, I was very afraid of the stock market. And as a result, I'm naturally very risk averse. And this is a common trait with a lot of millennials. They've been hesitant at times to get invested in the stock market because they are risk averse. But at the same time, you know, again, with millennials, like dreamers, right? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we often dream big and that's good. Not saying Gen Z doesn't, but what we have seen is a lot of Gen Z is more pragmatic when it comes to their money. We've also seen, and again, granted, they are younger, right? Gen Z also wants to know everything about managing their money. They want to be fully educated before they simply make a decision on that. Yes, well, they are uh, risk averse to some extent, again, seeing where they've grown up and, you know, obviously in the pandemic. What we've also seen is that they are more willing to possibly get in and start small and start investing their money, which is always good to see. And then something else that we've talked about a bunch in terms of trends, that they really are pure digital natives. Like millennials, yes, me and you, we are, of course, you know, used to doing things differently. We've had smartphones. A lot of Gen Z, they haven't even been alive when the iPhone didn't exist. You know, I had a flip phone for a while. I don't know about you. I had a Blackberry for a while. You know what I mean? So they don't even know what those things are. And so I think as a result, when it comes to managing their money and the ease of doing things digitally, they expect even more than previous generations. If it is not easy, if it's not seamless, they won't have it. They'll go to the next place. A piece of personal finance or a person's overall financial picture that I don't hear a lot of people talking about is how to evaluate job offers. How do you teach people to evaluate job offers, especially young adults? What are you looking at other than just salary? What is important to consider? Yeah, this is a great question. And you kind of hit on it already. A lot of times when people are evaluating job opportunities, they're looking at that number. They're looking at the salary that they're taking in. And what they are failing to consider is the other benefits that might come with that job opportunity. I remember when I first got an opportunity to work at Fidelity, you know, something that was touted was the great benefits that Fidelity offered. And I was like, great. It wasn't until I, I dove in and quite candidly and honestly, I actually had a Fidelity colleague dive into these benefits for me that I was like, oh, wow, this is a company that really kind of stands out you know, from others. So, But just speaking more generally, I think when individuals out there are evaluating different job opportunities, there's a few things that you want to look at. I think the first, and I've hit on, on this a little bit already, is does the company offer a workplace retirement plan? I think uh, things like 401k, 403b, and, and keep in mind, people listening, I didn't actually know what that was when I graduated school. No one actually educated me on that. But how I phrase it, it's, it's literally a company saying like, hey, Kelly, we like you. We care about your future. We're going to help you invest in it so you don't have to work forever. So you want to make sure, you know, number one, do they have a workplace retirement plan? Number two, same subject, do they offer a match? Do they actually give you money towards your retirement? Often companies will tell you, hey, if you put in this amount, we'll match that you know, dollar for dollar. It's like free money. You'd never, ever leave free money on the table. So that's kind of one important piece. Student debt, I've kind of touched on this already. There's a lot of companies out there as one as their benefits. They actually help their employees help pay off their student debt. So that's something to definitely look into. Do they have other perks? Like, for example, do they give you, if you want to continue your education, Fidelity actually helps individuals pay you know, for their education if they want to go to grad school or take specific courses. As we've already talked about, student debt is such an issue out there. So if you have a company that can actually help you pay for that, I think that's tremendously important. I think the other thing too is where is the job located? 
If you're looking at, you know, two jobs that are paying the same amount, but one's in Manhattan and one's in Iowa, your money is going to go a lot further in Iowa than it is in Manhattan. That's really important. And then something else to consider, especially for those, you know, older listeners who may not be going to their first job, but then maybe changing jobs is just make sure you take a step back and understand what you might be leaving on the table. For example, I mentioned something called a 401k. Often there's vesting guidelines that are attached to that 401k. And what this means is that they want you to stay employed at a company long enough to get the full benefits of the match, for example. So some companies might say, okay, you need to be with us for a year and then we'll start giving you the match. And then other companies might say, okay, you have to stay with us five years. And if you leave us after that, you know, you can only take 20% of the match that we gave you. So this is important because you never want to leave money behind when you're actually changing jobs, unless that job opportunity can actually make up for any benefits that you might leave behind. So just a few important topics for those like maybe considering their first job offer, as well as those who might be going to a new job. Often when I talk with financial experts about personal finance, I like to get their opinion on a hotly debated question. And that is, should someone start investing or paying off debt first? And I've asked this of quite a few guests. And the reason I do that is because I like to hear different viewpoints. I think it's great for the audience to hear your opinion on it and other guests' opinions, but also more so than just whether it's invest or pay off debt, also your explanation. I think sometimes somebody explains it in a certain way that really clicks with people. So do you think that someone should start investing or paying off debt first? And does it matter what type of debt we're talking about? Does that change your answer? Yeah. So I think you can do both. Um, and, you know, I'll go back to some of the things that I've already pointed out that the, the first thing that one must always do, and this is Fidelity's point of view, is that if you have access to an employer-sponsored retirement plan, make sure you take advantage of that and make sure that you contribute enough to get your match, okay? That is free money left on the table. And we've seen even, you know, over the, the past 20 years and beyond, the rate of return in the stock market, um, you know, it, it is often much higher than the interest rate attached to any debt you have. And we always want to make sure that people start soon, they take advantage of compounding and don't work until they're 125 years old. So the first tip always when it comes to investing is make sure you take advantage of that. And on that same note, if you have a 401k, if you have a 403b, if you have a retirement plan through your employer, you are an investor. Often we find like a huge like gap in, in what people consider themselves to be an investor or not. But if they do have that, you are an investor. So congratulations, because sometimes people don't actually realize that by doing that, you know, you're investing in your retirement and you're not just saving for your retirement. So I think that's really important to pay out, uh, to point out. The second thing we go to um, in terms of kind of hierarchy and goes in your question, which debt you should pay off first, we always recommend really try to tackle those higher interest debts that you have and really start with something like your credit card debt. Um, credit card debt is directly tied to your credit score. Your credit score is something that can help you, um, you know, do different things in your life, whether that is renting an apartment one day. I didn't have a credit score coming out of school. I had to have my, fa my father co-sign on my first apartment. I'm getting a mortgage one day, a better loan. So it's very important to maintain a high credit score because that can help you later in life. Often too, with your credit card debt, remember nothing makes your debt grow quicker than interest, you know, you can't get tax breaks on that. Um, and it can grow very high because often that is at a higher interest rate some, than some other loans. And then after that, we actually urge everyone to take a look at their student debt payments. And again, focusing on the interest rate, tackle the, the student loan debt with the higher interest payments first. 
Uh, typically, those tend to be your private student loans, typically not always. So make sure you take a look at that. And then before you tackle some of those lower interest loans, whether that is um, a, a federal loan against your student debt or possibly a mortgage with a very low rate. I know any homeowner out there, we recently refinanced. Rates are just very, very low right now. We've actually seen that you can actually get more out of your money by investing than just plowing your way through debt. Now, the reason, and Robert, you probably heard this with other guests, is that debt has a very negative, like you feel emotions, right? You know, you get very upset about it. It has very heavy emotions to it. And that's why often people are like, oh, I'm just going to plow my way through debt, just get it over with because like it's stressful. It doesn't feel good to carry debt. But in reality, if you have very low interest interest rate on your debt and you have the opportunity to put a little bit more towards your 401k or put a little bit more in your stock market, over time, and we've mapped out this data, you can actually get more for your money doing that. But when it comes to that, it really does have to be a personal decision. But I just hope people see that there is a way for you to do both. Um, and we really hope that, that people do. So, Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 
Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So you mentioned that credit scores are very important, and I agree with that 100%. And I want to take that idea and kind of combine it with what we talked about earlier of how people are learning from various different alternative sources, whether it be social media, podcasts, whatever it might be. And the way I want to do that is, how do we know who we can trust online for financial education? If, if everybody is putting things out there, you mentioned that there might be a TikToker who just starts, who doesn't really know what they're talking about. How do we know who we can trust? And the reason I thought of this is because you said that credit scores are very important, which I agree with. But then there's somebody like, say, Dave Ramsey, who says that, Credit scores don't matter at all. He says you shouldn't even have one. He says it should be zero. When you pull your credit report, it shouldn't even exist. And I understand where he's coming from. I spent a lot of time studying Dave, and I don't think he's necessarily somebody you have to be worried of following. But like, how do we know what is the right financial education, financial information out there, who we can trust? And then why do you think you're different in terms of your opinion on credit scores than maybe Dave is? I think at the end of the day, what works for some people in terms of financial guidance um, might not work for everyone. And so I think that's really important to note. And there's a lot of financial influencers and just individuals in general who say some things that might not be uh, consistent with Fidelity's point of view, but say other things that make a lot of sense, you know, uh, starting small, bucketing the way you're thinking about your money, for example, these are things. But in, in Fidelity's point of view, um, you know, we do see the importance of building good credit and, and more importantly, just building strong habits so that you're never getting yourself into trouble when it comes to, to credit card debt. We feel like building those strong money habits that encompasses so much more than just, you know, paying off your credit card, for example. Um, we really feel like building, you know, those good money habits that expand beyond that is one of the most important things. And when you say who you can trust, you know, the first place I, I, I do look to is, you know, financial services companies. Um, it is our job, um, as well as we are, we have a fiduciary responsibility to ensure we are giving our customers the, the best advice possible. Um, we we don't necessarily make recommendations unless we know everything there is to know about a customer. So I do think that um, Infidelity is one example. Financial services companies have the best interests of their customers in mind. Um, I think the other thing too is even though uh, maybe your, your parents or your family members or individuals in your communities, maybe they don't know it all, I still do think they can be trusted to give you the best advice they can, or they're able to do so. You know, at the end of the day, and, and I'll just, you know, say parents, for example, my parents always had my best uh, interests in mind. And so although maybe they couldn't give me the best advice per se, because they too were someone who said, hey, <laughs> never get a credit card. I always put everything on your debit card and then came back. I was like, well, what do I do now, parents, when I can't even get an apartment? Um, they always did have my best interest in mind. So I could trust that. So I think that's helpful. But if I were, you know, individuals who were kind of looking to just start starting out and maybe they, you know, didn't want to talk to family members or friends, I would honestly start with whoever my plan sponsor is. If you have access to a 401k through work, like go to them first, talk to them. That's a really good first step, especially in terms of your finances. If you don't just want to Google 
And companies like Fidelity, you know, really do have individuals' best interests at heart. And, you know, you asked the question, why us? Um, I always, to this day, see one of our, our, our main competitive advantages. One of the things I'm most proud of as a company is that we can really support you throughout the course of your lifetime. I'm focused on someone who's young, who's just starting out. Um, you know, we can help you if you're having your, your first kid. We can help you if you want to buy a home. We can help you through retirement and through any health-related issues. So I think that because we can help you throughout the course of your lifetime, that is like one of the best reasons I feel like it, it is to work with us and why I'm most proud to work at a company like this. You mentioned that you guys are fiduciaries. For those who have heard that term and just don't know what it is, they just always hear it and they just kind of go with it and never question it or have never heard it before. What exactly is a fiduciary? When I say fiduciary, how I best describe it or how I best think of it is you know, an individual or an organization that puts the interest of someone else, in our case, our clients ahead of our own. That would be the easiest and best way that I, I describe it. And we literally have a legal obligation to do that. It's something that we would do regardless of that. But that is how I would describe what a fiduciary is. Yeah, I was gonna say that legal piece is the really important part because people could say they'll do that, right? But if they don't have the fiduciary duty, if they don't have that legal piece, then, I mean, they could say that, but it doesn't mean they actually do. Whereas somebody who is a fiduciary who claims to be a fiduciary, they have a legal responsibility and they could actually get, not sure if sued is the right word, but they can get in a lot of trouble for not doing it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, sometimes being in a highly regulated industry, maybe we can't say certain things that we'd like or push, but at the same time, I think it's one of the best things because to your point and you know, I, I do think that we would do this regardless, but having that legal obligation is definitely something that individuals can trust in. From all your work at Fidelity, talking to all the people you do about money and even managing your own money, what have been some of the biggest things that you've learned? So I think number one, you know, I know we're talking a lot about younger people and how important it is to get started. I think one of the best things is it's actually never too late to get started. So depending on the age you are listening in on this and you might be like, oh man, I haven't started. Again, not too late. Just do something, get started. As we've already discussed, one of the biggest things is people like not taking those first steps or inertia sticking in and just you're just not doing anything because it feels overwhelming. But it is never, ever too late to get started. I didn't invest in the first 401k offer to me coming out of school. It wasn't until four years later when I started working at Fidelity that I, I had the opportunity to do so. But I did it, you know, I, I'm in the game. So I, I think that's number one. I think number two is that the importance of talking about money and starting to have these conversations. I think that for a while, for one reason or the other, and we already talked money's taboo, I think that another layer of that is that no one ever wants to feel like dumb or stupid, right? And sometimes when you ask questions about money, you think you're the only person in the room that has that question, when in reality, that's not the case. So I think that's it. Talk about money, make sure you ask questions. And then I think number three is that it doesn't have to feel as intimidating. You know, I think that you can start small. You don't have to put a lot into the stock market, for example, if you wanted to get started. And there's countless ways that firms like Fidelity and others can help you if you do have questions. For anyone that's listening to this episode that is interested in hearing more about how you might be able to talk about money with friends, family, parents, spouses, et cetera. I did a really good episode back on episode 87 with Aaron Lowry, all about how to talk about money with people. I used a lot of what was taught in that episode. So if you haven't heard it already, I would highly recommend you go back and check that out. Huge fan of Erin. She's also someone that you can trust. Yeah, she does a really great job. And I think that was her third book that was really focused on that as well. So I'd recommend 
reading all the books in, in her Broke Millennial series as well. Exactly. And, and Kelly and I actually didn't talk about Erin before the show or plan to talk about her. So these are two totally unbiased opinions, Erin. She's great. And her last book was really good too. If you're looking to find out ways of how to talk about money more easily with people in your lives, definitely check out that episode and check out Erin's book. Kelly, at the end of each episode, I've created a segment called The Action Plan where I talk through with guests a habit or principle that people can apply in their lives, a book that they should go read, and just one action step to take when this podcast is over. Because like you mentioned, a lot of people don't take action on what they're doing. And I wanted this podcast to be different. I wanted this podcast to really push people to actually take action on what they're learning and not just learn it. So the first thing is, which principle or habit do you follow in your own life that has had a big impact on your success? Whatever you define that success to be, whether it's in your career or with managing your own money, that you don't think enough people do, but should. So it's hard to say not enough people do, but I have to say exercising. I know that's not directly related to money. I am a big proponent of like your health and wellness. They do go hand in hand. And for me, I do think ensuring that I am healthy and I'm getting exercise in and sound of mind, that translates to the rest of my life. So I don't know if that's what you were looking for, Robert, but I'm a big proponent in that. You know, get out for a walk, go for a run, do anything to get your heart rate out, clear your mind, because that can help in so many things beyond even your money. But that's a habit that for me really kind of keeps me sane. And and to be honest, I would say contributes to a lot of my success. Yeah, I don't have anything specific that I'm looking for any of these. So I just love to hear. And that's exactly one of the types of things that I'm interested in hearing because I think not enough people necessarily connect the two. Maybe there are people who are focusing on fitness or health, but they're not connecting on how that impacts their career or their money. And for me, that's typically how I answer that question too. Fitness is really important to me. so. I actually really, really like that answer. Now, for a book for somebody that's listening to consider and maybe go read, what has been the most influential book in your life? So it's funny. In terms of money, I was actually going to bring up Aaron's books before we even talked about it, because I think for a lot of people just starting out, they are really great books that do a good job of breaking things down into simple terms so you understand, as well as tackling specific questions you know, that we discussed today. It's very interesting. I'm a huge reader. And putting aside like any book having to do with money, I specifically remember The Babysitter's Club as I was growing up as being that thing that really got me into reading from day one. And how it ties back for money is that the, the main character of this book series she started a club where they were making money. They had a treasurer who was my favorite character in the book. Her name was Claudia. And this, I would say, is really an area that got me into reading the most. I'm someone who reads more for pleasure more than anything else. Like It is something that is a good release for me. So I just wanted to share that again, a little bit of a personal note versus necessarily like the number one book that I would recommend improve your life per se. When this episode is over, before the listener quickly jumps to the next podcast that they want to listen to, what is one action they should take that can help improve their life, career, or business? Yeah, I think going back to the to multiple themes that we discussed today, I challenge each and every one of you who's listening today aim to have at least one money conversation by the end of the week. You know, have it with a partner. You know, if you're going to go to dinner and date night, bring it up there. It always helps to have a glass of wine, right? So. If you're someone who is maybe still like living with your parents, you know, have a conversation with them. And it doesn't have to be even in terms of your own finance, you know, ask your parents what their plan is for retirement, you know, maybe bring it up to some of your friends, recommend this podcast to your friends, for example, but 
that would be my challenge to everyone on this call after today. Aim to have at least one money conversation with someone in order to kind of get more comfortable in talking about it. That's great action item. That's exactly why I do this action plan segment is I want people to have actionable takeaways that they can go and implement in their lives when they're done listening to this, not just consume, consume, consume the education. We talked about a habit or a principle to apply in your life, some books to go read, and then that one action step to take when podcast is over. Read the Babysitter's Club series when we get off here, Robert. Yes. Is that? <laughs> well, I have a long list of probably a hundred plus books that are on my to read list. So I don't know if those are going to move to the top, but do, they'll yeah, be on there. I always do. So. <laughs> Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. What question do you have for me? I like this. So what is your biggest money mistake and how have you learned from that? So I have to preface this by saying I really haven't made anything, any mistakes that have been catastrophic. And that's not because I'm smart or do anything special or anything like that. I just happened to start learning about this really, really young before I could really make any big mistakes. So I started at a credit union about, actually, you'll be familiar with the credit union because you're local to me, but DCU, one of the largest credit union in the country. And so before I actually started as a teller, like the day after I graduated high school, and they require you to go through a personal finance training or course for like a week or so. And so I learned that pretty much as soon as I turned 18. So I really didn't have a lot of time to kind of screw things up for myself. But the one mistake that I did make is that I purchased a car that I probably shouldn't have at the point where I was. I was working like two or three internships and I was making what I thought was a lot of money at the time. And so I purchased a BMW. Thankfully, it was used. It was not a lot of money. It was like $10,000 total. So like that mistake really wasn't massive, but it was my first car loan. It was probably more than I should have paid for a car. And it did... I don't want to say haunt me, but because of negative equity and how long I held onto the car did hurt my financial future, I guess you could say, for a few years, even after that decision had been made. Ultimately, today it's over with and really wasn't that big of a deal, but that was probably my biggest money mistake so far is buying a car that I probably shouldn't have, especially given my financial position, how old I was, et cetera. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We've seen millennials more so than any other generation, they always take it harder. So they always blame themselves for any money mistake versus like taking it and making it a learning experience. Yeah. I just take your story and, you know, definitely learn from anything you have, but also celebrate your wins, right? Because Robert, I bet you, you had a lot more money wins than not. So it's very important. Yeah. I like to think so at least. I think you did. (laughs) For those who have enjoyed this conversation, want to connect with you, learn more, either from your own personal resources or the resources that Fidelity are giving out, where is the best place for the audience to go? And if you want to learn from me, definitely follow me on LinkedIn. We are constantly putting out you know, content, telling stories in order to educate and hopefully inspire people in terms of their money. And you can always visit either fidelity.com or download the Fidelity Spire app, two excellent resources for you to check out you know, if you're just looking to get started. I'll be sure to put a link to those different resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. 
Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.